The paradox of our time, of our time in history, is that we have taller buildings but shorter tempers, wider freeways but narrower viewpoints. We spend more but have less. We buy more but enjoy less. We have bigger houses and smaller families. More conveniences but less time. We have more degrees but less sense, more knowledge but less judgment, more experts yet more problems, more medicine yet less wellness. We've learned how to make a living but not a life. These are the times of fast foods and slow digestion. Big men and small character. Steep profits and shallow relationships. These are the days of, of, of two incomes but more divorce. Fancier houses but broken homes. These are the days of quick trips, disposable diapers, throwaway morality. One night stands, overweight bodies, and pills that do everything from cheer to quiet to kill. It is a time when there is much in the showroom window and nothing in the stockroom. And such is the nature of our day and our lives when we have this world as our focus. Listen to the preacher, Kohelet, King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I de denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labor. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so 
meaningless. Like chasing the wind. There was, there was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. So I came to hate life because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless, like chasing the wind. You may remember when we studied through this particular book sometime back. There is a phrase that repeatedly shows up in the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon talks about life, quote-unquote, under the sun. And there is this constant refrain, it is vanity, it is worthless, it is meaningless, it's all futility. All of life, that is, that is under the sun. And what many people don't see when they, when they read the book of Ecclesiastes in, 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 a, in one setting without, without studying it is that Solomon is looking at life purely from a material point of view. He's looking at just this life under the sun. He's not, he's not looking at, at the rest of life that is life beyond this world. And he's saying, if all you focus on is the stuff of this world, you will not find much meaning. You will find a great deal of futility, emptiness, vanity. And you'll wonder, what is worthwhile here? Why am I giving myself to all of this stuff? For it is fleeting, futile, empty. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? There was more to life than just this life. Wise, prudent, smart is that person who realizes there is more than what we see here. And that is, that must be the focus of our attention, even now. Jesus says all of this much more succinctly in our text before us this morning. In our continuing study through the fourth gospel, we're in John chapter 6, a glorious chapter of Scripture with some wonderfully poignant and, and, and eternal shaping truths. This particular chapter opens up with Jesus doing an amazing thing. As we put the other synoptic gospels together, we, we learn that Jesus um, has uh, qu quite a following. Uh, he's got 
more Twitter followers than anybody. He is wildly popular. And there are crowds of people coming, wanting a piece of Jesus. And they bring the sick, and he is healing them. And on this particular day, he, 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 he teaches them as sheep without a shepherd, Mark instructs us. It was on that same day. After, after a long day of ministry, teaching and, and encouraging and counseling and healing the sick, the demon-possessed, Jesus, toward the end of the day, realizes he's got this burgeoning crowd of people. What's he going to do with them? His disciples urge him, well, just send them away. These, these people are hungry. They're, go, they're going to they're gonna pass out here. We, we, just... just Get rid of them. Dismiss the crowd. Jesus says, no, no, you, you feed them. What? We don't, we don't have the money to do something silly like that. So Jesus takes a little boy's lunch consisting of five dinner rolls and a couple of pickled fish. He blesses them. And he begins to give them to his disciples, and they, they take it out to the crowds. And there are 5,000 men, plus women, plus children, that eat on that particular day. Easily 20,000 people, all in this crowd, now having a full tummy. Last week, in our study through John 6. We found Jesus at the end of that day urging his men, pushing his men to get into a boat and go to the other side of the lake. Now, the Sea of Galilee is only eight miles across at the widest point. And Scripture tells us that after Jesus pushed his disciples out, he went up on the mountain to pray. The crowd, meanwhile were amazed at what they saw. They loved what they saw. They loved what they ate. And it says that they wanted to make Jesus king. Why not? They had in Jesus their own personal miracle worker. Free health care, free food. Well, how could life get better? That night, a storm came up on the sea. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. And that particular night, Scripture tells us it was in the fourth watch, meaning between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus walks to the other side of the lake on the water. His disciples straining at the oar, Mark tells us, I painted a picture last week to you from your perspective, the Mediterranean Sea here, Sea of Galilee here, 700 feet below sea level, the winds traveling 25 miles from the Mediterranean Sea to the Sea of Galilee, 25 miles here, that cool air swoops down in that bowl, causing all kinds of difficulty traveling from east to west on the sea, and the, the disciples labored all through the night, and they only got halfway across the lake. And they saw Jesus. They saw Jesus walking on the water, 
When they realized it was Jesus, Peter said, Lord, let me come out on the water. And he walked on the water too, albeit briefly. And then, as soon as they stepped into the boat, the wind was calm. And at that same instant, they were on the other side of the lake at their destination point. The disciples were amazed at what they saw. And in the parallel account in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 33, we read this. Those who were in the boat, the disciples, worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. The disciples were beginning to get it. Not the crowds, however. It was as though they were fixing their binoculars on Jesus all night. They didn't want to lose sight of their, their free lunch ticket. So the next morning, they realized Jesus is not among them. If you turn to John chapter 6, verse 22, we pick up the narrative I'll read verses 22 through 34, and then we'll come back and look carefully at the text. The next day, verse 22, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they, they themselves got into the small boats, came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, <laughs> when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, uh, what, 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 sh what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God that is, is for, the, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Verse 22 and, and following tell us that on that following day, 
Jesus was not in their binoculars. The crowd was wondering, where, where, where's our, our, our free lunch guy? And uh, they started hunting around, and they made the observation, uh, wait a minute, there's, um, uh, there, there's no boats that are missing. Jesus would have had to pass through the crowd in order to walk around the lake. So they knew he didn't walk around the lake. But there's no boat there for him to get in a boat and go across the lake. Well, there were some other boats that were coming. Now, maybe those boats were blown in from the storm the night before. Maybe they were also off course. Maybe these boats had heard, maybe the, the drivers of these boats had heard that there was uh, free food on the other side of the lake. And so they were bringing groups of people. Uh, maybe it was that they had heard, these people on, in, in Tiberias on the other side of the lake, had heard that, the, that there was um, um, a, a large group of, of Jews on the other side of the lake, which is generally Gentile territory, and they were surmising, well, these people are probably going to want to go back home, and so uh, I will rent out my boat as a water taxi and take them home and make a buck or two. Well, we don't know why, but, but the crowd members were careful observing uh, something's not right here because we don't know where Jesus is and we don't know how he left. So they started their search, and verse 24 tells us that they went to Capernaum. Well, that was a logical place for them to start looking for Jesus because that was Jesus' adopted hometown. He grew up in Nazareth, but he left Nazareth because of their rejection of him, and he went to Capernaum. Okay? Good place. Well, they found him there. And they asked him, verse 25, Rabbi, when did when, when, you get here? There's another question that's tacitly implicit within this. Namely, how did you get here? You know, if Jesus had been completely honest and forthright, if he had told these people exactly what they wanted to know, what would he have said? He would have said, well, you know, in the middle of the night, eh, somewhere between 3 and 6 in the morning, I walked across the water. On top of the water. No, I didn't swim. I walked across the water. What would they have said? Oh, oh that's, that is so totally cool. We want to see that again. Do it again, Jesus. Do it again. Because these people were singularly focused on the stuff of this world. You'll notice in verse 26 that Jesus doesn't answer the crowd. They did, he doesn't answer the question about him. He makes a comment, a rebuke, if you will, toward them. Truly, truly, I say to you, uh, uh, verily, verily, amen, amen, he, he, he's, he's saying, listen up, this is true truth you need. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me. You know, if there's a, per a period there, we would say, that's a good thing. It's a good thing for people to seek Jesus. 
It's a good people, good, good, good thing for people to come into a church here and to listen about Jesus. But there is not a period there. He says, you seek me not because you saw signs. Oh, let me put another pause here. Remember what a sign is. A sign is something that signifies, signifies something. It points to something. Every miracle that Jesus did had this as its purposed intention. To reveal him to be none other than the Messiah of God. So what did, the per, what, what did these people see from the hand and the mouth and the, and, the, and the feet of Jesus just the day before? He was healing all the sick, all the demon-possessed. He was teaching them as a, as a sheep without a shepherd. He fed that crowd of some 20,000 people. Every one of those signs pointed to Jesus as God in the flesh. You seek me, Jesus says to the crowd, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were full. It's a good thing for people to seek Jesus, but not to seek him for wrong motives. There are many churches sprinkled across uh, the United States that we would uh, identify as being prosperity gospel churches. Churches that, uh, that will uh, promote... Um, well, you, you, you can have your best life now. My friends, this is not my best life. My best life is yet to come. It's a good thing to seek Jesus, but not for the wrong reasons. Do, do we seek Jesus to, in order to get This crowd did not come to worship Jesus. They didn't seek him in order that they might obey him. They wanted to use Jesus in order to satisfy what they wanted. You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. And so Jesus gives this, this correction, verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has sent his seal. Look carefully at this verse. Jesus begins, don't work for the food which perishes. Now, just the day before, Jesus multiplied five small loaves of bread and a couple of fish. A food that will, will that, that would perish. He multiplied that in order to, to, to feed the people and nourish their physical being. 
Is it wrong to work, to labor, to put bread on the table? Absolutely not. That's something that is necessary in this world. Jesus is not denying that we have a material, corporeal body. It needs to be nourished. It needs food. Jesus' point here is, don't make that the focal point of your life. If you do, you will find yourself in the middle of Ecclesiastes that I read earlier, where you will say, life is futile and meaningless. Well, if this world is the focal point of my life and existence, yeah, it'll be meaningless. Vanity. Filled with no purpose at all. So Jesus says, there, there, there must be a greater pursuit for your life. Work for the food which endures to eternal life. Hmm. You'll notice the next... Uh, word in the New American Standard Text. The word which. Um, is, is Jesus talking about the food or is he talking about the eternal life? Food which the Son of Man will give you or eternal life which the Son of Man will give you? Well, we don't have to spend a whole lot of time uh, try, trying to parse that out and figure that out. Uh, Yes, both are true. The food that Jesus gives us for eternal life, both the food and the eternal life are gifts by the Son. It's not something that we, um, um, we, we can earn or deserve. So in, the, in this sense, the word work work for this kind of food um, would be in air quotes. Value. Cherish. Focus on. Think about. Carefully consider. That's what he's talking about. Carefully consider this kind of food. Food which endures to eternal life. Now, Jesus is going to, in, in just a handful of verses, which we will not look at this morning, is going to talk about himself being the bread of life, verse 35. He says a couple times here in this chapter. He is the food to which we must give attention. It's this food, it's this eternal life that the Son of Man gives Why? Well, because on him, on the Son, the Father has set his seal. In antiquity, a, a, a seal um, was a mark of ownership, much like a rancher will use a brand for his cattle. It, 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 it marks 
those animals as belonging to him. Seal was also used as, as a stamp of approval, if you will. When Jesus was baptized, um, Matthew uh, chapter 3, God the Father says verbally, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That was a seal. That was a stamp of approval. So I am called to labor, to focus, to set my sights on food that endures to eternal life. Well, it's not exceptionally concrete. It's a little, um, a little ethereal. Let's make it concrete. Second page of your notes. Verse 28 opens with, with a, a statement by members of the crowd that, that, that cause us to just um, roll our eyes in unbelief at their unbelief. Therefore, verse 28, this is in response to Jesus. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Now this is a, um, uh, what we might call a quid pro quo statement or, or, or a question, uh, meaning uh, something for something. So the, the, the crowd, um, fleshly driven, materially focused, said, we really like Jesus being our free lunch ticket. We, we really like... Um, uh, the, the, the food stamps that he ha handed out last night. And, and we want more of that. Okay, so what do we have to do in order to get that? Something for something, quid pro quo. Uh, how, how, do, how do we continue to get what we want here, Jesus? What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? There are some um, Bible teachers who are, uh, um, uh, well, the, the, the flags start flying in their mind when they, when they read a statement like that. Because they think some of the people in the crowd are, are asking Jesus uh, a, a question similar to, to what the lawyer asked or what the rich young ruler asked Jesus. Um, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And their perspective, their, their thinking is, well, I, I have to earn uh, anything in life that is meaningful. Um, so if, if, if we're talking about salvation, obviously I've got to, I've got to earn that too. How, how is it? What do, I, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? There's come some... Uh, many uh, Bible teachers who, who, who think that's, that's the meaning, the attention of, of, of members of the crowd here at verse 28. Uh, well, that's possible. And, and just, just by way of review, um, I might uh, direct you to a number of passages of Scripture. I have some of those printed in your notes. 
But succinctly, the Scripture tells us that a person is not saved by the things that we do. We are saved by grace alone, God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. If you'd like to follow with me in uh, uh, the book of Galatians, chapter 2. Paul says this, verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. I am not saved. No person is saved by any amount of religious deeds they might do, money they might give, little old ladies that they might help across the street. We are not saved by good things that we do or say or contribute. We are saved by God's grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. Period. So if these members of the crowd are are a little bit more spiritually attuned with Jesus and are asking, um, what do we have to do in order to inherit eternal life? If that's what they mean by this question, they're asking the wrong question. I, but, but, but honestly, I, I don't think that the members of the crowd are, are, are this spiritually attuned. They are dull. They are spiritually blind. They are deaf to the Spirit. They're spiritually dead, depraved, unable, incapable of thinking things like this. Mm. They, 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 they thought they could, that we, we, could certainly, we could certainly agree on, on this. They, they thought they could buy God's mercy. What do we have to do to do the works of God? Well, Jesus corrects them. Next verse, verse 29. This is the work of God. N- notice, notice that Jesus uses this word work in keeping with their question. But they're asking about the works, plural, of God. And Jesus refines that to say, this is the work of God. This this is the point of focus. All that God desires, longs for, wants, is this. The work of God is that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now the form in the the Greek language, the form of this uh, uh, verb translated translated, that you believe uh, refers to a continuous action that I do personally. It's not a one-time thing. 
It's not uh, raising your hands so that you can get baptized and, and uh, then you're in, right? He's talking about a continual action of believing. I'm continuing to believe. This is, this is what is desired by God. This, this is the point of focus. That you believe in him who he has sent. To believe solely in Christ. If you look, your eyes look over at chapter 6, verse 44. We'll spend a little bit of time when we get here on this particular verse. This is one of those, those gold mine landmark verses in this particular chapter. It reads this way. No one can meaning he doesn't, have the, doesn't possess the ability. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, there is no person who is ever saved by their own initiative. No person is saved apart from the initiative of God to draw people unto himself. Now, that does not mean that we do not believe. Oh, yes, we must believe. But I believe only because God has so worked to enable me to believe. Look with me over at Ephesians chapter 2. I hope most all of you have this verse memorized. Ephesians 2.8 2, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. The, the question here is, what does the word that refer to? What's its, what is its antecedent? Faith. We could read it this way. By grace, you have been saved through faith, and that faith is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. So by the Father's initiative, drawing his people unto himself, I believe, and I must believe, and I must continually believe that Jesus is the one whom the Father has sent. Similarly, I have to repent. But repentance is not something that I generate within myself. It too is a gift of God. Look with me over at Acts chapter 11. There's a big brouhaha among the early church made up largely at this point of, of converted Jews. And there's a big brouhaha regarding this, this, this Roman centurion named Cornelius is, who is now a professing believer in Christ and he has received the gift of the Holy Spirit. He and his entire household, they're all Gentiles. And the Jews are going, whoa, 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 I don't know what to do about this. Letting Gentiles into God's church? Why are you, what? Finally, verse 18 of chapter 11, I they calmed down, 
And after thinking, praying, considering all that has transpired and all that Peter is talking to them about, he says, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Even repentance is a gift of God. So it is, a, is, is, is part of the initiative work of God, drawing men and women unto himself, that he gives us the ability to believe. He gives us the ability to repent. And believe and repent, we must. But it's in response to the, work, the Father's work. So whether we're talking about belief, whether we're talking about repentance, whether we're talking about trusting the Savior... I have a responsibility here. All of it is in response to his work on my behalf. Now, um, in, verse, in verse 30, we, we, we again shake our heads at the unbelief of these unbelievers. But honestly, we shouldn't. It, 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 I, I suppose it, it should be, our response should be one of pity, one of prayer, one of an eager desire that these people have their eyes open, their ears open, their brain engaged so that they might see, perceive, understand, and glorify Jesus who gives life and sustains life. He who is the bread of life. Well, this is what they say. What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? You're kidding me, really. What? what, what did you, were you paying attention yesterday? Were you asleep through all those people that I healed? Did you not hear a word I said? Did you not have dinner last night? Do you know where that came from? Well, the, the next verse helps us understand a little bit of where they're coming from. Our fathers, verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Oh, here's their thinking. Here's their thinking. Jesus um, there are some among us that say, you, you are the prophet. You're the one of whom Moses said, one greater is coming after me. Jesus. <laughs> Moses didn't give the Israelites just one meal. He gave them manna every day for an entire generation, 40 years. So Jesus, what's it going to be? You're going to have to match that. You're going to have to top that one. So, do you want to give us lunch right now? What, what miracle are you going to do? What sign are you going to perform that's going to Tell us in no uncertain terms who you are. We're waiting. Go ahead. Really. Anytime. This would be a good time. Really. 
Jesus said to them, verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. You see, they, they, they thought that Moses was the one who gave them this stuff called manna. No, God did. Keep your finger here in John 6. Look, look with me over in Exodus, Exodus chapter 16, verse Verse, uh, da, 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 verse 13, Exodus 16, 13. So it came about at evening. The quail came and covered the camp. In the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, as the, uh, uh, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Look at verse 31. House of Israel named it manna, for it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. Well, sounds kind of good. Um, I don't know if I would like it as my only or my, my primary food for 40 years. I don't know about that. Um, the, 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 the Hebrew word manna simply means, translated, what is it? So when mom sent her kiddos out to gather food for the day, she said, go find some what is it and bring it in and I'll put it in the what is it container. But the point is, it, it came from God. It didn't come from Moses. So Jesus corrects their, 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 their twisted thinking. No, what, what God has provided is not something that is generated by a man. Now, they thought that this, um, this bread, this what-is-it stuff, came out of heaven as if, as if there was some kind of heavenly bakery that delivered manna every morning. No, the manna was earthly. It had nothing to do with heaven. It, it sustained their physical life. Certainly, it pointed toward the one who supplied it, and he was in heaven. Jesus wanted to make sure that they understood that he himself came from heaven, and as such, he was the ultimate manna. But you didn't have to call it a what is it? It's Jesus. He was the one who came to feed, to, to nourish, to satisfy, as only he could do. Verse 33, the bread of God that comes down out of heaven, uh, I misread that. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. 
it gives life to the world. Manna was restricted to the Israelites. They were the ones who benefited from this miracle that happened every morning, except on Sabbath. Jesus says, the bread that I give doesn't just satisfy one generation, and it doesn't just satisfy the Jew. It satisfies the world. To the world, he gives life, sustains life by himself, who is the bread of life. Now, let me, let me, let me, um, well, I'll, I'll conclude. Verse, th- th- verse 34. Uh, they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Uh, um, uh, these people are not talking about uh, the, the, the spiritual bread. They're, they're, they're talking about um, the stuff that they ate last night. And they still don't get it. Um, by way of application, let me, let me uh, direct your, your, your mind first and your fingers to, uh, to John chapter 17, what we call the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. John 17 verse 3 um, captures in different words the same thing that John is capturing when he, when he says of... Uh, when he captures the words of Jesus. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is our, our, our point of focus. This, this is what we are here to be about. John chapter 17, verse 3. Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You can't believe in one whom you don't know anything about. Or to put that sentence more grammatically, of whom you do not know. Question. Can, can God ever be known Albert Einstein once said, certainly there is a God. Any man who doesn't believe in a cosmic force is a fool. But we could never know him, unquote. Okay, so for, for this Jew, Einstein, he believed that there was a God, is a God, but he is unknowable. And yet Jesus says, if you would have eternal life, you have to know God. You have to know Christ. You have to believe in him. Question, can God really be known? Let me direct your attention to a couple other passages of Scripture. Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, 
Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might, nor a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. I direct your attention over to the first book of the Minor Prophets, book of Hosea. They're not minor because they're less important, just minor because their books are smaller. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. God says, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. I delight in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Point here is that God wants to be known. He is no a bull. So what does it mean to know God? Think about this with me for just a moment. You know your house. You know your car. Unless you have moved here very recently, um, you know this city well enough to get around. And you all have friends. Some of you are married. You have a spouse. You have children, maybe. Maybe grandchildren. And, And you know them. Is it... Is it easier to know your house or your spouse? Well, it's easier to know your house, is it not? Because people hold secrets, and people don't tell you everything that's in their mind. I tell my wife that she, she, by this point, I mean, today's our anniversary, right? Forty years. By now, she should be able to read my mind. No, no, no. There's things that I hold back. There always are. The the more, the, the greater the complexity, the more time, effort, and energy required in order to know that other thing or that other person. Now, if you have a pet, a cat, dog, rabbit, maybe, whatever it is. You, you, you probably know, can anticipate what that animal's going to do at a particular time. You know the animal wants outside, or you know that the animal's hungry. Ah, but when it comes to a complex person like a family member or a close friend, oh, you can know them for decades and yet still be learning there still may be things you don't fully grasp yet. What about with God? Is there a more complex being in the cosmos? No. He is so complex, we will spend eternity learning and figuring out who is God? How does he work? What makes him tick? God wants to be known. 
He wants us to see his, his, his complexity. He wants us to put the pieces together of how his sovereignty fits with human free will. Last question. So, so how, how, how do we do this? If my point of focus right now, so that life doesn't just become a, a, a meaningless, futile, vain series of events, if life is to have meaning, purpose, direction, it will go beyond this life. And Jesus is quite plain. Eternal life is this to know God and to know Christ. Jesus said, this is is the one work. This, This is your singular focus here on planet Earth, to continually believe in me. How do we do that? Well, it is by means of the scriptures that God has revealed himself. He has revealed himself that we might know him. And he's put it here in the pages of sacred scripture. There are many people that, that uh, brush this off as, a, as, as an ancient book. I mean, how can we, how can we, um, how can we know that uh, Plato and Aristotle and all those old dead smart guys, how, how, how can we know that what we read about them is really what they said? The uh, reliability of the Scriptures surpasses everything, everything that we have received from antiquity. This book is absolutely unique. Um, and, it, and, it, and it's here that we find uh, the words of life. It is here that we come to know God. And I'm not talking just simply about reading the Bible. It's a great place to start. Great place to start. But more in terms of getting to know God who has made you It's all wrapped up in the discipline of meditation. Taking a verse of Scripture and ruminating on it. Thinking about it. If you have only five minutes to read your Bible on a morning before you've got to rush off to work, for example, spend three of those moments reading. And spend the last couple thinking about, meditating on. Therein, you will be growing in your knowledge of God. Just as important is the discipline of of, of prayer. Spending time communing with our Lord and Savior.
the book of Philippians. Paul writes these words, chapter 3. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I, I, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them <laughs> but rubbish so that I may gain Christ, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, conformed to his death. I want to know him. I want to know him who is the bread of life. I want to know him who sustains life, who gives life, who nourishes life, even eternal life. Let's pray. Father, your glorious gospel has been lived out in the person of Jesus. We've seen it on the pages of Scripture. We, we see it on, in, in the lives of, of genuine believers that we might meet um, every day or maybe every Lord's Day in, in worship. Father, place within us that, that longing for satisfaction, J just as if our, our stomach was empty and rumbling, we were, were hungry. Uh, to, with that kind of feeling, uh, place within our soul that kind of, of insatiable desire and appetite to take part of the bread of life. Indeed, we want to know him. Fill that desire, we pray. In the name of the Master.